Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and this is Your Strata Property. As a partner at HWL Ebsworth in Melbourne, Tim Graham practices exclusively in the areas of strata and subdivision law, owners corporations dispute resolution. Tim is one of Australia's preeminent strata lawyers. He is the president of the Australian College of Strata Lawyers and a fellow of the college. Tim has been named in Best Lawyers Australia for Real Property Law three times and has been recognised in Doyle's Guide as a leading property and real estate lawyer. He is a council member of Strata Communities Australia. Tim also has extensive experience in domestic and commercial construction law matters, providing contractual advice and appearing in building defects claims, insurance reviews, repair and maintenance and Water Act cases in VCAT and the courts. Tim writes regularly for the Australian Property Law Bulletin, of which he is a member of the editorial committee, and periodic publications of industry associations and strata management companies. He is a prolific presenter to most legal CPD providers, industry bodies and universities on owners corporations and subdivision law topics. Today we are very lucky to have with you and I am delighted to welcome Tim Graham. Welcome Tim. Amanda, thanks for the invitation. And can I add that, in my opinion, you are also one of Australia's preeminent travellers? <laughs> yes, yes. I have to say, I was giving Tim a bit of a dig about that before we went to air. Uh, yeah, what is there? Two of us? These are preeminent lawyers in Australia. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep that between us, I think, Amanda. We might have to get knocks on the door. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Well, we are uh, lucky to have you today. You are a busy man and that is an impressive uh, bio, that's for sure. And uh, we're here today to talk about an interesting case that has recently been decided in Victoria and there are some issues arising from that case relating to discrimination, uh, disability access in our buildings and we thought it was a bit of a, a hot topic to bring to our our listeners. The case is what I call the black case. And I might start, Tim, by asking you to fill us in on that case. What was it about? What were the facts? And then we might get into what the court decided and what the impact of that might be on our communities. Sure, Amanda. Again, thanks for the opportunity. It's an issue that is not unknown. Um, The facts of the case uh, were that the respondent in the appeal, uh, Ms Black, moved into a dwelling lot and after moving in developed a disability which uh, required her to use a wheelchair or a mobility scooter and as a result of using the scooter or the wheelchair she was unable to make use of a door and ramp to the car park um, and the main entry and the rubbish disposal and outdoor area so her access to most of the I guess means of access and egress of the building as well as facilities was precluded as a result of her disability. She requested then modifications to those areas to allow her access and accommodate her reliance on her wheelchair and scooter and the owners corporation refused 
the request. It's not strictly a strata case as you and I would probably generally understand that nomenclature. The case proceeded as while pursuant to equal opportunity legislation. There's a few sections that are relevant and I won't laboriously labour to the text of sections, but in brief, they can be summarised this way. There is a prohibition in the legislation against discrimination. Service providers are required to make reasonable adjustments for persons with a disability. And owners corporations are dealt with specifically, and they are required to make reasonable alterations to common property to accommodate persons with disability subject to various listed requirements. And those requirements include that the um, person with, with the disability fund the cost of those alterations. So those are the relevant provisions. You've mentioned there the obligation, Tim, on owners' corporations to make reasonable alterations. Is that in the equal opportunity laws? Yeah, it is. Uh, So Section 56 requires an owners' corporation to allow owners or occupiers with a disability to make reasonable alterations to common property subject to various requirements, Mm. uh, including the funding of the alterations. Okay. And you've mentioned there as well that the court considered the owner's corporation to be a service provider. Yeah, it did. And I found that, respectfully, to be drawing a bit of a long bow. Mm. You can come at that various ways. In terms of the definition of service in the equal opportunity legislation, Well, it's a beneficial piece of legislation uh, and it's read broadly as a result, but in the context of alterations to common property, it is the owners' corporation service provider. I I don't think the equal opportunity legislation helps there. So you go to the Owners' Corporations Act and the Subdivision Act and you look at the authorities and the position really, well, firstly, the word service appears 12 times in our Owners' Corporations Act in Victoria Mm. and it means something different each time. Right. So that creates its own problems. But in terms of what known as corporations' statutory purpose is, the Supreme Court's made a very clear statement about that in a rules case called Belgum, which was a service department short-term letting case, but in deciding whether a rule was valid or not, the uh, the court, the tribunal and then the court, looked at what is the statutory purpose of the known as corporation and basically said it's to manage and administer common property. Mm. That in itself... To me, it seems to me that an owners corporation within the framework of the owners corporations act is not a service provider. Yeah, I have to say I agree with you and we'll close off this black case shortly and I might just mention a New South Wales case which was very similar, the case of Hulina, which dealt with that question of whether an owners corporation in New South Wales is providing a service uh, because I find it hard to get my head around that characterisation of owners corporations as well. Um, let's just close this out. Uh, what ended up happening in the black case, what orders were made once the court established that the owners' corporation is a service provider and must make these reasonable alterations. Well, the Supreme Court granted leave to appeal, uh, but um, contemporaneously dismissed the appeal. It gave the term services a wide reading, as we've just discussed, and the alterations, um, were, well, the owners' corporation was forced to accommodate the alterations proposed by the respondent to the appeal, Ms Black. And is it the case that she had to pay for it? I think you said in the Equal Opportunity Act it's for the user of that service to pay? Yeah, that's that's my understanding. I yeah. have seen some other cases and I have um, heard comment from, I think it was the Commonwealth Commission or um, in any event some time ago, that they were of the view that the owners' corporation needs to fund 
these adjustments or alterations to common property so as not to discriminate uh, against a person with a characteristic. But uh, I think that's stretching the bow, Amanda. So what's the fallout of this case in Victoria? I appreciate it's still early days, but are buildings that you're working with, strata managers you're talking to, concerned about this? Are, they, are buildings now thinking they're going to have to be upgrading or permit upgrades to their common property because this has now uh, been established by the courts there? That's the concern, Amanda, yeah. I mean, the default position, of course, is in Victoria, as all other jurisdictions, as I understand it, that there would be rules in Victoria bylaws elsewhere prohibiting owners or occupiers from altering common property. In terms of building improvements on common property, it's probably also a trespass at law. So you've got the operation of rules or bylaws and the tort of trespass all seem to militate against uh, this happening, but we've got this now statement from the Supreme Court that basically says if you come within the ambit of the Equal Opportunities legislation, then you can circumvent or obviate those laws and, and cause adjustments to be carried out. And there may still be some discussion about um, who pays. The legislation does have the criteria as we've discussed, but... Um, I have had it put to me that it's known as corporations impost, so there's probably still work to do there too. Mm. It seems to me uh, when we look at these cases that are relying on equal opportunity legislation or what we would call in New South Wales anti-discrimination legislation, that we're really digging into this question of whether our strata buildings are public or private spaces. And if they are public spaces, then the, that kind of legislation comes into play. If they're private, then we are within and should remain, I think, within the scope of our strata legislation and uh, for our specialist tribunals to determine questions under that legislation. This was an issue that came up in New South Wales back in 2009 in a case called Hulena. It's H-U-L-E-N-A. And I'll put a link to that case in the show notes. And that was a decision of what was then the Administrative Decisions Tribunal in New South Wales. That's now been subsumed into NCAT. And it was a question under the Anti-Discrimination Act. Uh, that act prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability in the provision of goods and services. And similar to your black case, the tribunal decided in that case that the owners' corporation was by providing entrances and exits to the building, this is kind of bizarre, providing a service. And because Ms. Hulina, who suffered from MS and was in a motorised wheelchair, needed, uh, I think it was ramps or accessible entrances and exits, the owners corporation was obliged as the provider of a service to install those ramps. The specific facts of this case uh, meant that the order wasn't actually made against the owners corporation because it was found that the failing to provide that service was a failing of the developer. And Ms. Hulina did not bring her application against the developer. She brought it against the owners corporation. So a very interesting case, but we had a similar fallout here in New South Wales when that first came out to say, um, this is kind of counterintuitive. Surely these, our strata communities and the common property in our strata schemes are private spaces. And isn't it a bit of a stretch to say that by providing a front door and entrance and exit, we are providing a service and we're therefore capturing 
captured by this anti-discrimination legislation. And as far as I'm aware, that is still a bit of a grey area here in New South Wales. We haven't had any more guidance from superior courts on that. But I've certainly been involved myself in communicating with lot owners and their lawyers who want to make alterations to common property because of wheelchairs and and, uh, other access issues. And generally, I'm telling owners' corporations, look, you'd be well-placed to make these alterations, considering that they're not too onerous, because you do expose yourself to this kind of litigation. Yeah, and you've hit the nail absolutely on the head in distinguishing between private property and what might be regarded as a public space, in my opinion. Um, It's very rare for an owner's corporation to have public space. You might have a community title uh, or an estate development, a garden community, these sorts of subdivisions that have roads and what have you. But by and large, um, your garden variety owner's corporation is private property. Mm. Uh, I, I agree with you. Yeah, and just on the point about cost, in the Hulina case, although the order wasn't made, uh, there was, I think, some comment from the uh, tribunal members considering the case that if the order was going to be made, then it would be that the owner's corporation meet the costs. And there are actually some figures in the case, I think something like seventeen dollars or $18,000 for that work to be done. So, look, interesting, interesting. It is. Uh, Look, I had one a couple of years ago where the proposition was that an elevator was to be installed on common property for several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, if that is a burden upon the lot owners, it's not tenable. Mm. Yeah, well, that's the risk, isn't it? That when we have um, decisions like this coming out of our tribunals or our courts, that um, owners' corporations are going to be exposed to that possibility and lot owners requesting those kinds of adjustments be made. And, you know, again, it's an example of this anathema to property law that is strata, these very unusual public-private questions and... Yeah, that's right. And look, you know, discrimination is obviously repugnant and abhorrent and, you know, nothing nothing that we've discussed this morning, you know, in any way I think derogates from that. But uh, we are talking about fundamental proprietary interest. The legal understanding of discrimination is, is just so wide that it really seems that, you know, this might have well and truly opened doors for people to make all sorts of claims to carry out all sorts of adjustments to common property. And that is a problem. It's contrary to rules and it's contrary to the notion of the owner's corporation being the proprietor of common property and having the proprietary interest in it. Mm. And introduces an unacceptable, I think, level of uncertainty for our owner's corporations, for those who are managing them, when we... I'd say in New South Wales, uh, our legislation, the cases coming out uh, decided under that legislation and as we see through anti-discrimination legislation are not so clear. It's it's unhelpful and I don't know, uh, you perhaps have more clarity now in Victoria, I don't know if you think that there will be amendments to your legislation to deal with this issue. What do you think will be the fallout from this, if anything, I wonder if we will see buildings attempting to make rules about adjustments, modifications to common property in relation to access for disability and perhaps saying no, that that's not permitted or it's only permitted to a certain extent or it has to be paid for by the occupier who requires it. Uh, I wonder if we will see rules that will attempt to regulate from the inside, if you like, this um, issue. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think it said, coming back to your question a moment ago, Amanda, in terms of legislative response, I haven't heard anything yet. It's all it's all brand new, of course. So, And as it occurs, we've been undergoing a what's known as the Consumer Property Act review for about two years. We've got an you know, election coming up. So whether or not they get through before that occurs in November, I don't know. But that's where the attention in this space has been. Candidly, I don't know in the in the space of discrimination, equal opportunity, and human rights if there's anything there. But I can safely say, given the case is only two months old, that um, I don't understand that it's on the agenda. In terms of an owner's corporation's ability to govern itself, well, it's a very interesting question you make, and without diverging from our primary topic this morning, again, I mentioned the case of Belcom earlier, uh, which was the service department case, and in that case, the Supreme Court said that an owner's corporation doesn't have the power to pass a rule which prohibits an owner letting their lot for under a threshold period of whatever, 30 or 60 days. And I've seen you present on this fantastic paper at Axel, then known as ACAL last year, Amanda. So you're all across this. But <laughs> anyway, the, the Belkin case, I mean, the, the Supreme Court in that case said that Nones Corporation doesn't have the sovereignty to um, make its own decisions about what rules govern leasing. So that was a real circumscription of what probably had heretofore been regarded as known as corporations, sovereign rights. Mm. Um, it requires thought. I don't know the answer. It, it's new. Um, mm. And specifically on the topic of short-term letting, which I know we're both committed to not getting into today, yeah, you do right. have uh, some new legislation in Victoria, which by all media reports has been characterised as being very short-term letting friendly and more friendly than our proposed or our new legislation now in New South Wales when it commences, we which was a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, it's a very light touch. What it does is set out a list of behaviours that are referred to as prescribed behaviours and really there's perhaps some more specificity in their description than might otherwise appear in the rules, but I think fundamentally what underpins those prescribed behaviours is really going to be a breach of of the model rules as they stand or if an owner's corporation has made and registered its own special rules, it's trite to say that there's going to be rules against behaving antisocially and creating noise and disturbance and what have you. I mean, every owner's corporation has that rule. The prescribed behaviours, I don't really think, add anything. Mm. I don't think there's going to be likely to be too much caught by the new description of prescribed behaviours that wouldn't already be a rule breach, frankly. And secondly... There's probably some extended powers on the part of the tribunal which is going to be able to restrain the practice of short-term letting. I think it requires three complaints in 24 months and then there'll be some temporal, uh, probably ephemeral um, restraint put on that. It can fine and it can make a compensation order. Now, those are clearly stated powers. As it stands, Section 165 of our Act has a kind of while it's an inclusive, non-exhaustive list of orders that the tribunal can make, arguably the tribunal can already do all those sort of things, although it's not explicitly stated with the new legislation, well, at least we've got an express statement that the tribunal has those powers. So it may be regarded as extending the tribunal's power. That's about it. I don't think that the behaviours really add anything. It's a light touch, as you identify. Mm. I think you've done better in New South Wales. 
Yeah, very interesting what we've come up with in New South Wales. Uh, I'm actually going to jump on a, a Facebook Live shortly after our call and have a bit of a chat to uh, some interested people about that. So I'm still getting my head around that as well. But look, New South Wales will be the same as Victoria. It'll be wait and see, wait and see what buildings owners do with the legislation. And probably if, as you say, Tim, uh, what's happened to Victoria is really just to reassert what the existing powers and duties that and uh, rights are already there, then perhaps um, not too much will change. That's right. Yeah. All righty. Tim, you're on the podcast. You get the book question. What books have had the greatest impact on you and why? Um, it's appropriate to give Cathy Sherry a plug. Her book on multi-owned properties is, it's really the, the apogee, I think, of the recent texts in this area. And uh, I raise it not only to say g'day to Cathy, but also you made the axiomatic point earlier about that public property and private property dichotomy and Cathy yep. um, just she puts that so so clearly and robustly I think it uh, it's, it's a really good sort of calibration or recalibration for all straight lawyers to, to have a look at that so that would be that one and uh, whilst I've never been to church I have read the Bible out of interest does that count? <laughs> <laughs> you have to be my first guest in two and a half years that has listed the Bible. There we go. Is that right? <laughs> uh, well, did you say what had the most? I, I wouldn't say it's had the most influence on me. I, uh, I read rock and roll biographies. It's probably you know, no one get, here gets out alive on the doors or something. But um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you. Bringing all colours, all shapes and sizes and tastes to our podcast. That's what we like. Indeed. All righty. Anything else you want to add, Tim, before we wrap up? I know that you are uh, a man with many topics to discuss and a lot of value to bring. So if there's anything that you wanted to our listeners to be particularly aware of that's going on in Victoria when it comes to strata law, uh, now's your chance. Well, we did make a commitment to each other. We weren't going to talk about service departments. We've already made a lie out of that. Uh, <laughs> well, you want to talk about cladding now? <laughs> oh, no, I don't, but I'd, I'd rather not. Can we avoid that? Absolutely. Uh, look, that's an issue here, um, as it is everywhere, obviously, and that would warrant its own. You've probably done it by now. And um, in any event, I, I think it's going to need to keep getting done as things develop, but the space is moving very quickly. So we're not going to deal with that today, Amanda, with your blessing. But <laughs> the 75% termination threshold with conditions in New South Wales is very interesting. Whilst we're undergoing this Consumer Property Act review in this state, my hunch is that they're not going to touch uh, that issue of termination of a strata scheme at a threshold less than unanimous. Mm. Um, so I'll be interested to hear what you say about what's going on in New South, but I did. Oh, about a month ago now, I uh, was successful in obtaining an order dissolving an owner's corporation, which is the first time I believe it's ever been done in this state. Oh, wow. But it doesn't, it's a step towards an order for termination, which is not legislated. Well, it's, it's either a unanimous resolution or VCAT has jurisdiction to make those orders. What happened in that case very briefly was it was a, it was a lateral estate of um, several hundred lots. There was two parcels of common property. One was just near the gated entrance, and I think there's a sign or such there. And then there was this amphitheatre in the centre of the estate, which was marketed beautifully, but um, functionally, unfortunately, it's been a place where gangs hang out and tend to get up to nefarious activities and there's vandalism and violence and owners corporation is just indefinitely chasing its tail to fund repairs and maintenance, it's tried security and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, it decided that it could do without the amphitheatre and 
that it would be better off disposing of common property and dissolving the owners' corporation. So we didn't seek or obtain an unanimous resolution. We went straight to the tribunal. We made the arguments. The tribunal was satisfied that it was in the owners' corp's best interest to uh, order the dissolution of of it. Um, so the owners' corp disposes of that front parcel goes to council and will be a reserve. The middle part will be sold to a developer for not less than the threshold amount and the developer can then um, develop it. Uh, the owners' corporation then will have no common property. The roads are roads under the Road Safety Act, so they're not common property. There will be none, and it's an estate. So the owners' corporation doesn't need to exist. It's obviously limited to its facts. Those those factual scenarios wouldn't apply to vertical towers. And uh, the other thing, of course, to note is um, whilst the owners' corporation has effectively been terminated, no one was deprived. There wasn't a compulsory acquisition, if you like, of somebody's person holding out of their lot. So I think that's the uh, the next generation of arguments going to be if the tribunals made one order dissolving an OC, it's got power to dissolve. That means and includes disenfranchising um, someone from their lot. Uh, obviously, there's arguments the other way. There's no express power for the tribunal to do that. So I think that's the next generation. But... I'm interested to hear from you about um, how your termination laws are going. I think there's there's a few before the courts as we speak. There are a few before the courts and there have been some interlocutory decisions that have been published uh, about things like uh, how to do valuations and we don't yet have a final decision that at the time that we're recording this where a scheme has been terminated and that order's been made, that final order's been made by the Land and Environment Court for um, the sale or the redevelopment development of the scheme. I have a couple on my books at the moment and the interesting thing that I'm seeing is um, the interplay between the developers, the real estate agents, the owners who have been told that if they were to sell in one line, they will all get above market value for their lots and the arrangements that are being put in place in terms of um, option deeds while the developers do their research, get their ducks in a row, get their council approvals um, and a lot of is not understanding what all of that is about. Why am I? Why is a real estate agent talking to me, asking me to sign this contract and pay me this option fee? And what does that mean? Will I be forced? They're telling me that if I don't sign this, and it ends up in court, that I'm going to get less. I'm doing a bit of work around it, just advising owners on those kinds of documents in those types of situations. So I, that's a really interesting practical impact, I think, of this legislation, which maybe maybe wasn't foreseen, but. Um, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see when those cases do get determined and we have some principles established for exactly how this process is to run. Yeah, indeed. Look, they're very smart um, developers, aren't they? I, I think that discussion about compulsory termination has been going for as long as I've been around. It's about 20 years and it's been urgent for about 20 years. And <laughs> you um, think of a lot of, uh, you know, the, uh, up your way, your buildings in the eastern suburbs and northern beaches and what have you that, you know, a past their use by date, um, but they're forking out a lot of money just to eke out another year of amenity, and it's, it's just false economy. Mm. That's where it started. Uh, it took yeah. about five minutes, I think, for developers to see a commercial opportunity with this, yeah. and um, I, I think you're going to be very busy with it. 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I have to say, Victoria, they're very lucky to have uh, your hardworking brain down there with those um, very interesting cases. And thank you again for giving us your time. We, I've taken up more of your time than I intended to. I'm going to ask you, Tim, to let us know how our listeners can find out more about you. So where do they go to get in touch if they want to? And uh, then we'll wrap up. Um, so the firm is HWL Ebsworth Lawyers. So it's HWL Ebsworth, and uh, my email is T Graham one word T G R A H A M at hwle.com.au. Excellent. And I will make sure that there are links to uh, the cases that we've talked about and your contact details in the show notes for this episode, which is over at yourstrataproperty.com.au. And that's about it from me, Tim. I look forward to uh, catching up with you in person sometime soon. We'll do that. Amanda, thank you so much again for the opportunity. Great to chat with you. You too. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?